And I, I, I would venture to guess that some of us, at some of our less than honorable times, can be brought to think, well, I'm doing pretty good, but Jesus fills in the rest. But this passage reminds us that we had no capacity, no strength, no ability to save ourselves. But while we were yet without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. There's nothing in me that is salvation worthy, but Christ makes all the difference. We need to be reminded of that. Because we talked about hope for the believer and we talked about growth for the believer. And so now we're in our second uh, message of talking about practical instructions for the believer. And so that brings us to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Last time we talked about um, family and primarily the husband and wife relationship. And now uh, Peter is going to talk about um, remembering uh, the sacrifice that Jesus made for us, and that is our motivation to continue to live the way that he would have us to live. And so we're going to look at our first section being 1 Peter 3, 18 to 22, and I'm going to read those verses for you, and then we'll open in a word of prayer. Um, 1 Peter three eighteen to 22 reads, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. The like figure whereunto baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that as uh, we take the next few minutes to look into your word, that you will be with us. We pray that you would help us to glean that which you would have us to learn and that you would help us to toss out the things that are not of you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is kind of a confusing passage. Verse 18 is pretty uh, simple and pretty easy to understand. For Christ also has suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened in the spirit. So this is what happens when we come to know the Lord Jesus as our Savior. 
is that we are put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit. Paul said, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. A couple months ago, I think uh, maybe right after I was here or possibly right before I came, I was made aware of a young lady on Facebook who shared a testimony that she had spent a year and a half uh, as a, from like her freshman year through her sophomore year um, in high school, identifying as a man. She was not happy uh, with the way she was made. She was not comfortable in her body. She didn't feel girly compared to her sisters. So she bought the lie from social media and from other places that she was born in the wrong body. So she made this decision to live as a man. She considered changing her name. Fortunately, she did not do any surgical damage to herself. Um, But in... Late 2021, she came to know the Lord Jesus as her personal Savior. And God revealed to her that she was a beautiful woman made in the image of Almighty God for a purpose. The Bible tells us that God made us male and female. And so she became a new creature in Christ. And when I saw her story, I said, I need to tell that story. And so I reached out to her and asked her if she'd be willing to come on my podcast. And you can look back in my podcast archive um, to, like, I think it's like three or four weeks ago now uh, that her story was featured on my podcast. But the interesting thing was, I simply posted the night before that this is the guest um, I'm going to have on my podcast tomorrow. And I tagged her, and I said I was excited to give her the chance to share her story. And I started getting a ton of vile and hateful comments from people who were saying that her parents, along with myself, were preventing her from being who she was meant to be. And I was taken aback by how Gross, some of these comments were. Um, but I knew that something like this could happen. Why? Because Jesus said, If the world hates you, or if the world hates you, remember that it hated me before you. And fortunately, I had some friends that were much more comfortable than I was with the situation who were able to dive into the comments and really minister to some people, which I'm very thankful for. And that podcast has been up for a couple weeks. And in the first week that it was up, I think we had over a thousand listens. And now it's at almost 1,200. It's the biggest listening audience I've ever had for my podcast. And I'm so excited that so many people heard the story of redemption. That is only possible through the Lord Jesus. So if you know someone who is struggling with this, because I believe it is a struggle. I don't think it's something that you can just say, well, stop doing that. It's not right. You need to understand that people are in a struggle. 
But you need to meet them with the only answer that we have, and that's the hope we find in Jesus Christ. Because, as Paul says, but for the grace of God, there go. Go I. So I'm sorry for rabbit trailing, but I think as we look at this, we realize that the only way that we can be uh, truly saved is through the redemptive work of the Lord Jesus. Uh, he is the difference maker. Mm-hmm. And then we come to this confusing verse here, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometimes were disobedient, uh, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was a-preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not in the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I just want to share with you a couple of theories about this preaching to the spirits Um, I'm not going to fall dogmatically I don't think on one side or the other Um, but I did want to share with you some thoughts that I found one said the spirits in prison are that one theory is that the spirits in prison are fallen angels or demons the spirits in prison cannot be holy angels because the holy angels have not sinned and are not in prison And not all of the fallen angels are imprisoned, of course, for the New Testament gives many examples of demonic activity on earth. That leaves a select group of demons who, unlike their fellow demons, are held captive. The second theory is that the spirits in prison are human spirits of those who perished in the flood of Noah's day. As for Christ preaching to to them, there are three possible interpretations. A, that Christ preached to them figuratively in and through Noah while they were in the flesh. Because we know that in, that, I think it's in Second Peter, Peter will say that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. So we know that he was preaching during the construction of the ark. Um, and then the second theory is Christ preached to them literally being present with Noah through the Holy Spirit who inspired Noah to proclaim the message of coming judgment, or C, Christ preached to them literally between, in between his death and resurrection. According to each of these interpretations, the spirits are called such because they existed in a spiritual condition when Peter wrote. They were no longer in the flesh, but lived in Hades or hell. And that is from gotquestions.org. Additionally, David Gizek said this, which I found kind of interesting, We also don't know exactly why Jesus preached to the imprisoned spirits. In all probability, this was preaching the proclamation of God's message, but it was not evangelism, the proclamation of good news. Jesus preached a message of judgment and final condemnation in light of his finished work on the cross to these disobedient spirits. In doing so, there was a completion in Jesus' triumph over evil, even the evil that happened before the flood. The Bible says that even those under the earth must acknowledge Jesus' ultimate lordship. Here, Jesus was announcing the fact that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow 
of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth. Philippians 2.10 We do not believe that Peter said that Christ preached the gospel to these imprisoned spirits. He taught that Christ announced his triumph over evil, which was bad news for them. For Peter's readers, however, it meant comfort and encouragement. When Jesus said, it is finished, that was the best news we could receive. The work of redemption is done. And then we see um, Peter talking about the picture of baptism. But as he talks about baptism, he says that the real answer um, to salvation is the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the reason that I have salvation is because I have trusted Jesus Christ for my salvation. Now, he commanded me to be baptized. So a year after I was saved, I was baptized. Um, As an adult now, I don't think I would have waited a year. But when I grew up in the Baptist church, they were really careful about making sure you understood baptism and going to a baptism class before they would baptize you. Um, But I really think in most cases when you read in the New Testament when someone was baptized, it was almost immediately after their salvation. And I'm not saying that you have no responsibility for the people that you baptize, but the primary person that has responsibility to be baptized correctly is the person being baptized. So if a person professes faith in Jesus Christ, and you believe they understand salvation and they've made that decision, I think if they want to get baptized that day, you should encourage them to do that. There was no baptism class in the New Testament. There was no three-week waiting period. There was repent and be baptized. And I really think that's a pattern that we should do a better job of following. And then we see in verse 22... That Jesus has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God. Angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. Isn't this a great thing? That whatever powers come against us, they're subject to Jesus. The name of Jesus is powerful enough to deal with any of the difficulties we face. That's amazing to me. And I bless the Lord for that. Can we look um, at a quick cross-reverence, Romans 5, 6 to 8, Romans 5, 6 to 8? You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Some people think 
And I, I, I would venture to guess that some of us, at some of our less than honorable times, can be brought to think, well, I'm doing pretty good, but Jesus fills in the rest. But this passage reminds us that we had no capacity, no strength, no ability to save ourselves. But while we were yet without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. There's nothing in me that is salvation worthy, but Christ makes all the difference. We need to be reminded of that. Watchman Nee says, Outside of Christ, I am only a sinner, but in Christ, I am saved. Outside of Christ, I am empty. In Christ, I am full. Outside of Christ, I am weak. In Christ, I am strong. Outside of Christ, I cannot. In Christ, I am more than able. Outside of Christ, I have been defeated. In Christ, I am already victorious. How meaningful are the words, in Christ. And truly, those of us who have been redeemed can clearly see that. So Peter has just reminded us that what Jesus did for us on the cross and what his resurrection did for us, uh, that he gave us the power to live out the things we've been discussing. So now we're going to see what Jesus' power allows us to do. And uh, my second point for today is Jesus' power allows us to live a committed and righteous life. Jesus' power allows us to live a committed and righteous life. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1-7. to seven. For so much then, as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh... Arm yourself likewise with the same mind. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. Then he no longer, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excess of wine, revelings, Banquetings and abominable idolatries, wherein they think it strange that you run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you, who shall give an account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead. For this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to the men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. But but the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. So we see here that Peter is lifting up the example of Jesus. And he's saying that Jesus um, suffered for us. And he identifies with us. We know that he's a great high priest that identifies with us in every human way and yet totally divine and without sin. And he died for us that we can cease from sin. Now, of course, those of us who have walked with God for a long time know 
that we still have a sin nature. Paul talks about that, that it wars within our members. But very similar to in 1 John where it says a believer does not sin. It's not saying that he never sins. Because he just got done saying in 1 John chapter 2, if you sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. What it is saying is that your lifestyle will not be characterized by sin. David committed many sins and atrocities against God, but you know what happened every single time? His conscience smote him, and he repented. I often... Uh, reflected on the fact that Saul and David made a lot of the same mistakes. But Saul had a superficial relationship with God and David had a personal one. What did Saul say to Samuel when Samuel told him that the kingdom was going to be ripped from him? He said, let us go and worship the Lord your God. And David, when he had sinned with Bathsheba, he said, Lord, restore to me the joy of your salvation. He talked directly to God. He had a relationship with God and it shone through. So that's what this is saying. That we should live according to the will of God. Romans chapter 6 says, how shall you continue in sin if You are gods. We shouldn't. Our pattern of life should be different. And so then Peter lists some of the struggles that um, we may have had in the past. And he says, one of the things that's going to change is that the people that you used to walk with, the people that you used to do life with, you're not going to be able to be with them and continue the godly lifestyle. Why? Because Paul said, evil company corrupts good manners. So when they think it's strange that you're not walking with them, then they will speak evil of you. And what should your response be? Your response should be, well, my responsibility is to give an account to the one who is ready to judge the quick and the dead. And the gospel is preached to them that are dead, that they may be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. We were dead in trespasses and sins, and we've been made alive in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Peter gives this uh, remark. He says, But the end of all things is at hand. Be therefore sober and watch unto prayer. You know what I think he might have been thinking about at that time? Remember a certain garden that Peter was in? And Jesus said to him, Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. I think that that scene was going through Peter's head when he's writing this. Because he says, but the end of all things is at hand. Be therefore sober and watch under prayer. 
We need to be people of prayer. We need to wear some holes in our jeans at the knees, especially today. You know, I, I used to hear that that scripture, woe unto those who call evil good and good evil. And I, I believe that in, a, in a, an abstract sense. And every once in a while I would see someone who lived that way. But now it seems like the vast majority of the culture around us is that way. And we need to shine brighter until the perfect day. So, what does that mean for us now that we've understood that we have victory in Jesus? And we've understood that Jesus' power allows us to live a committed and righteous life. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 4. Verses 21 to 25. Ephesians 4, 21 to 25. But, it says, but you did not learn Christ in this way, if you indeed have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being complete, completed in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth to each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So that is Paul giving some of these uh, similar thoughts that this is why we should live as Jesus tells us to do. Put off the, the evil things and embrace truth. It's so wild to me when I think about this modern cultural phenomenon of living your truth. It's very dangerous. Because you used to be able to at least bring people, even non-believers... At one point in our culture, you could bring them to absolute truths and say, this is the baseline for absolute truth. Have you ever wondered why this is an absolute truth? And now it's hard to do because we've embraced this culture that says, live your truth. We don't even believe that men are men and women are women. That's a foundational thing of our very culture and we don't even believe it as a culture. Charles Spurgeon said, Brethren, we have a Savior who suffered for us. As the head was, such must the members expect to be. Let us then be resolutely determined that suffer as we may, we will never turn aside from our Lord. For insomuch as we have suffered in him, yea, and died in him, we ought to reckon that we are henceforth dead to sin and that we have ceased from it and can no longer be drawn into it. Charles Spurgeon. And then just a little bit about the Declaration of Independence. We just passed the 4th of July. It says 56 men signed the Declaration of Independence. Their conviction resulted in untold sufferings for themselves and their families. 
Of the 56 men, five were captured by the British and tortured before they died. Twelve had their homes ransacked and burned. Two lost their sons in the Revolutionary Army. Another had two sons captured. Nine of the 56 fought and died from wounds or hardships of the war. Carter Braxton of Virginia, a wealthy planter and trader, saw his ships sunk by the British Navy. He sold his home and property to pay his debts and died in poverty. At the Battle of Yorktown, the British General Cornwallis had taken over Thomas Nelson's home for his headquarters. Nelson quietly ordered General George Washington to open fire on the Nelson home. The home was destroyed and, the Nel- and Nelson died bankrupt. John Hart was driven from his wife's bedside as she was dying. Their 13 children fled for their lives. His fields and mill were destroyed. For over a year, he lived in the forest and caves, returning only to find his wife dead and his children vanished. A few weeks later, he died from exhaustion. And that is from Kenneth L. Dodge. But it just it gives us a comparison point. These founding fathers were willing to die for the liberty that they preserved for us in our nation. And even more important than that is for us to be willing to die for the liberty that Jesus gives us. The third point, and I think I will make this my final point of the day, and we will pick up um, and finish chapter four next time I am with you. But the third point that I want to bring out is that Jesus compels us to love God and serve others. To love God and to serve others. So let's look at uh, 1 Peter 4, 8 to 11. And above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Use hospitality one to another without grudging. As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So we see here, and above all these things, have fervent charity among yourselves. For charity shall cover a multitude of sins. We need to have love for one another. That's what Jesus said his disciples would be known as. By our love for one another. And as we love one another and people see us living in community and loving one another... That's when they're going to want what we have. Nobody wants Jesus if you're just fighting with your brother. Another thing to think about is that nobody that you come in contact with is outside of the scope of the people for whom Jesus died. Jesus died for the whole world and gives the whole world an opportunity to come to him. 
And we have a responsibility to love others as Christ loved us. Jesus tells the story about the debtor who owed a great debt to the king and he couldn't pay it back. And the king said, since you have asked forgiveness and begged for mercy, I'm going to give you mercy. He says, your debt is forgiven. Go your way. He goes his way and he finds a guy that owes considerably less. And he grabs him by the neck and he says, you need to pay me what you owe me. Now. Or I'll have you thrown in debtor's prison. Stories told that the king found out, whether it was from one of his servants or the king overheard it himself, I don't know. But he finds out that this servant threw another person in debtor's prison for a much smaller debt. And then he rescinded his offer and said, you're going to stay until you pay every last farthing. Jesus was telling us there that if God gave us his love and his salvation, we should extend grace and mercy to others. Love is one of the most overused words in the English language. Um, I might say I love football or I love cheddar cheese. But those things aren't worthy of love. The only things that are worthy of love are God and the people that he puts in my life. And when... Paul, when Peter is talking about charity here, he's using the word agape. The word agape is unconditional love. This is a love that uh, doesn't have conditions. It means that you love no matter what. And I know that there have been many times when I have been less than lovable, but... God and the many people in my life continue to love me and I am appreciative. So just a little bit word on agape love. It says it describes the the quality of love bestowed by God and does not refer to an easy sentimental reaction. Instead, agape love is the fruit of the Holy Spirit in a yielded believer who is then enabled to do the supernatural, not the natural. Then the believer can love the unlovely and the unlovable, love in spite of insult and injury, and love when love is not returned. And that's from Precept Austin. And then we read from Erwin Luther, Hospitality is a test for godliness because those who are selfish do not like strangers, especially needy ones, to intrude on their private lives. They prefer their own friends who share their lifestyle. Only the humble have necessary resources to give of themselves to those who could never give of themselves in return. Some words about spiritual gifts. It says spiritual gifts are special capacities bestowed on believers to equip them to minister supernaturally to others, especially to each other. Consequently, if these gifts are not used or are not being used rightly, the body of Christ cannot be the corporate manifestation of its head, Lord Jesus and the work of God is hindered. Essential to unity 
is diversity. Unity of spirit and purpose can be maintained only through diversity of ministry. But unity is not uniformity. A football team whose players all wanted to play quarterback would have uniformity, but not unity. It could not function as a team if everyone played the same position. God gives his people varieties of gifts as just as players on a team have varieties of positions. And that's from John MacArthur. So I just want to end with a quick cross-reference to that. And that is Romans 12, 6 to 8. Romans 12, 6 to 8. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith, or ministry, let us wait on our ministering, or he that teacheth on teaching, or he that exhorteth on exhortation, he that giveth, let him do it with simplicity. He that ruleth with diligence. He that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. So Paul is talking about the different gifts that we have and the different ways that they manifest themselves. Now, I, I would say this. I think that, that God wants us to do whatever good comes to our mind. So... I don't think we should say, well, because I'm not gifted in this area, I'm not going to do this good thing. But I do believe that God gifts us in certain ways. And when we spend all our time wishing that we had the gift that somebody else had and trying to exercise that gift, we're not often tapping into the gift that God has for us. My final story that I want to share with you today and then I'll close in prayer. It says, newspaper columnist and minister George Crane tells of a wife who came into his office full of hatred toward her husband. I do not only want to get rid of him, I want to get even. Before I divorce him, I want to hurt him as much as he has me. Dr. Crane suggested an ingenious plan. Go home and act as if you really love your husband. Tell him how much he means to you. Praise him for every decent trait. Go out of your way to be as kind, considerate, and generous as possible. Spare no efforts to please him, to enjoy him. Make him believe you love him. After you've convinced him of your undying love and that you cannot live without him, then drop the bomb. Tell him you're getting a divorce. That will really hurt him. With revenge in her eyes, she smiled and explained, Beautiful, beautiful. Will he ever be surprised? And she did it with enthusiasm, acting as if for two months... She showered love, kindness, listening, giving, reinforcing, sharing. When she didn't return, Crane called. Are you ready now to go through a divorce? Divorce, she explained. Never. I discovered I really do love him. Her actions had changed her feelings. Motion resulted in emotion. The ability to love is established not so much by fervent promise as by repeated deeds. And that was from J. Allen Peterson. And I really think this is true. I know there have been times in my life where there was someone I didn't get along with as well. But when I decided to do something kind for them, it changed my perspective on them. And... The Bible tells us to esteem others better than themselves. 
when we're putting others before ourselves, we uh, don't have as much time to focus on our own problems. I actually saw a movie this week with a similar theme where this lady was struggling and she uh, started focusing on someone else's problem and it helped her overcome the problem that she had. So it's something that we all need to be exercised about and we need to make sure that we put the focus on one another because when we do, our problems will get better because a lot of our problems aren't even that bad. We just think they are because we're going through them personally and everything that's affecting me personally is the most awful thing ever. Well, my prayer for you is that you've been encouraged today. Know that we have a Savior who died, was buried, and rose again, gives us victory over sin and the ability to live a committed and righteous life before him. And I look forward to, in the will of the Lord, returning to continue our studies in First Peter. But for now, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Thank him for his presence here with us and for the meal that we're about to have. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is sharp and living. And we thank you for our continued study in First Peter, that you've given us so much hope from it. Lord, we think of Peter himself, and we realize that if you can use Peter, Lord, you can use us as well. And we thank you for that promise. Now, as we would enjoy fellowship around the food, we pray that you would bless those that prepared it, and that you would bless our conversation around the tables, that it would be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen.